Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then a portion from Judges chapter 2. And as I mentioned and explained a little bit in the pastoral column, over the next few weeks we hope to spend some time in Judges as a way to prepare for the celebration of the birth of our Savior, Christmas. So we'll begin in Deuteronomy 4, which is really part of the background to what's going on in Judges. Moses gives a warning uh, to the people about not straying away, not forgetting the Lord. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that you, or that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord God commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Let's turn now to Judges chapter 2, page 256, 256. We'll start at verse 6 and read into chapter 3, verse 6. This is part of the introductory or introduction to the, the judges themselves. And the Lord here in the section we'll be reading, uh, we get kind of, uh, you could say, God's perspective on what's 
happening in the whole time period of the judges. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the Lord, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunders who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." So far, the reading of Holy Scripture. 
Our text comes from Judges chapter 3, the verses 7 through 11. I'd like to read that with you, page 257 of the Pew Bible. Verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of Yahweh was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Uh, before you close your Bibles, would you turn back one page with me to chapter 1? <clears throat> I just want to read a few verses from chapter 1 about this Othniel, because there's a bit of information here, beginning at verse 11. From there they went up, and that's the tribe of Judah, they went up against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. That's as far as we'll go. And that's about as much as we know about Othniel, the son of Kenaz. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing together Psalm 30, the stanzas 1 and 2. Church, by our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned and explained a little bit in the pastoral column, we'll be taking a, a breather from the uh, letter of James to focus our attention on the season of Advent, the season where we expect the coming of the Messiah, coming of the Savior. This is in the church a, an annual tradition that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. At this time of the year, we, we think back to the Savior's first coming, and we remember why He was needed. And at the same time, we think ahead to our Savior's second coming with joyful expectation because we all know how badly He is still needed. 
In a real sense, the whole Christian life is a time of advent, a time of, of waiting. That's what that word means, uh, waiting for the coming. The word means coming, and we are waiting for the coming of the Lord. We're waiting for that fullness of salvation that He promised. And believe it or not, the book of Judges is very much an Advent book. It's all about waiting for a Savior. It's about crying out for a Savior. It's about eagerly looking for the Savior to come. Judges is one of those books we likely know something about, many of us, but probably not tons either. I think many of us will be familiar with some of the more, more famous stories like Samson and Delilah. We probably know about Gideon and Deborah and maybe Jephthah, but who knows much about Abdon or Elon or Ibzan? Which of us could recount right now the story of Abimelech or Shamgar or Ehud? And what about the man of our text, Othniel? Before today, if I had asked you, oh, tell me about Othniel, what would you have said? We tend to not know that much detail about the book of Judges. And so a, a question naturally arises, well, how do these, all of these interesting and odd characters and little-known people, how do they really relate to the advent of the Messiah Jesus Christ? Well, we hope to begin answering that question this morning by looking at what the Lord was doing in the time of the very first judge, Othniel. For as much as there are things to learn from the men, you can learn lots from the, the men and, and the one woman, Deborah, and there's a couple of other women too, who served as judges and saviors, the most important thing to keep our eye on is this, what is God teaching us? What is the Lord up to in this book? and in our text. So I bring you this word of the Lord, the theme of our text. The Lord uses foreigners to teach His people powerful lessons. That's our, the message of our text. The Lord uses foreigners to teach His people powerful lessons. We will learn about the road to slavery as well as the road to freedom. And when you stand back for a moment and look at the, the whole book of Judges, you can see that there is a, an introduction to the book and a conclusion to the book. In fact, there's a double introduction and a double conclusion. The book starts in chapter 1 on a very positive note speaks about Israel settling the promised land, Israel enjoying God's gifts, Israel attacking the remaining Canaanites as they were supposed to do. But by the time you get to the concluding chapters, it ends on a terrible note, a negative note, where there is unrest, where there is evil running rampant, where there is civil war throughout Israel. Now, I understand Dr. Beldman has spoken to the Bible study groups about that double conclusion, about those two very, very dark uh, incidents involving Levites in idolatry and Benjamites in sexual debauchery, chapters 17 through 21. That conclusion to the book is meant to enforce the picture 
the message of a downward spiral for Israel over the time period of the Judges. And the time period of the Judges makes up the main part of the book of Judges, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 16. And the book will show with each subsequent judge just how wicked God's own people are at heart. So what begins with a lot of promise in Judges 1 ends with disaster and virtual hopelessness at Judges 21. And if you go back to the the introductory material, we read some of it starting at chapter 2, verse 6, where we start to get the perspective of the Lord on how things went during this whole very, very disturbing period of time, we learn very quickly that the lack of military success talked about in chapter 1, we didn't read that, but you'll have to read that for yourselves, the lack of military success, the inability of Israel to actually defeat the remaining Canaanites wasn't at all due to the Canaanites' superior armies. It wasn't due to the fact that some of them had iron chariots either. The fact that Israel could not beat the Canaanites was due to one thing alone. The Israelites had abandoned the Lord their God. That's what we learn in chapter 2, verse 11, which we read together. The writer says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And here it comes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And the Lord sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. It wasn't the iron chariots. Wasn't superior war technique on the part of the Israelites, it was the abandonment of the Lord and the anger of the Lord in response to that abandonment. Israel did exactly what Moses in Deuteronomy 4 had warned them not to do. They forgot their covenant God. And that's not just a memory thing where they had a temporary forgetfulness. No, it means they turned their back on their covenant God and they chased after other gods, the idols of Canaan, the idols of the world. That's what the writer tells us in chapter 2, and then we get the first example in our text, the first example of these, this situation and what God did with it. After this, this general picture in the, in the introduction, the Holy Spirit gives us the first of 12 examples to show us in more detail just what was going on in this whole time period. And it starts out like this, verse 7 of our text, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. Notice the plural in those terms. Not just one Baal or one Asherah or Asherah. 
We know, for example, that there is only one true God, but among the ancient peoples of the world, they, there was thought to be many gods, multiple gods, even for different regions of Canaan. The Baals were masculine, the Asheroth were feminine, and the people of those areas, they believed that the, the Baals and the Asheroth were, were mates, they were consorts, you could say, and together they would control the fertility of the land. It would be the Baals and the Asheroth that would send rain at the proper time to make your crops grow. These idols, they thought, would cause your flocks to reproduce so you could grow wealthy. They would cause your wives and your concubines to bear children so you could have a large group around you. So as Israel settles into the land of Canaan, Canaan which had always served these kinds of gods, Canaan which depended on the, the regularity of the rains to get good crops, it was natural for them to look at how the occupants, the former occupants of Canaan, did things. For after all, these Canaanites had survived for hundreds of years worshipping the Baals and the Asheroth. They had been very fertile as a, a bunch of peoples living in that land. So wouldn't it make sense, thought Israel, for us to follow suit? Why don't we do what the Canaanites always did? Look at how successful they were. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if this isn't still a temptation for God's people today. If it works for the world, it should work for us, right? You have to remember that idol worship was simply a means to an end. It wasn't that the Canaanites had a relationship with any of their idols like we have with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We always speak about God loving us and us loving God. The, the pagans never spoke in those terms. They did not even have a conception that they were to love those gods or that those gods were to love them. Not at all. Rather, they would use these gods to get what they wanted from those gods. Idol worship was a tool for the Canaanites and then for the Israelites to become successful and wealthy and powerful, to gain more flocks and herds, to become more prosperous in the land, and to be fertile all around. And Israel simply took over those tools without even thinking about it. Work for them should work for us. You ever done something like that? Take over a tool, take over a method of unbelievers that appears to be quite successful for them and without even thinking about why you're using it or why they're using it, you just do it because it seems to work. And especially without stopping to think, how does the Lord feel about this method? That's the, the context of verse 7 and verse 8 of our text. The Lord tells us exactly how he feels about idol worship. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And there's a few things in that sentence. First thing you have to 
see is who's in charge here. It is the Lord, Yahweh, our covenant God. He's in charge. He's the main actor here. We can sometimes think of the book of Judges as good guys versus bad guys, as the weak Israelites kind of getting pummeled by their stronger neighbors, and then God comes in, sends in a man or a woman to, to save them. But the truth is, when you read the book carefully, there are bad guys on both sides. There are bad guys among the people of Israel in the church. In fact, the whole church had become bad. And God uses the bad guys on the other side, the Gentile enemies, He uses them to teach His people a powerful lesson. Israel would not have been overcome by this Kushan Rishathaim if the Lord had not been angry with His people, and the anger wouldn't have come if the people had not rebelled against the Lord. Notice the verb choice in verse 8. The Lord sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. He sold them. What does that make you think of? This is the exact kind of thing that Joseph's brothers, sons of Jacob, did when a band of Ishmaelites came along. You remember they had thrown Joseph into that pit. They had wanted to kill him, and they were debating what to do. Ishmaelites came along, and then they said, you know, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. That's the kind of thing that happened in the ancient world. Poor people, weak people, defeated people were literally sold for money to be slaves to the powerful. And here, Scripture tells us the Lord sells His own people. Sells them into slavery for no money. He sells them into slavery right in their own land. It's as if they have gone back into Egypt, Egyptian slavery, without having to leave their land. Can you imagine? Imagine the humiliation of that. Can you imagine the, the sinking feeling of terror of living in your own home but not being free? Not being free to serve the Lord? Not being free to do what you used to do? Being in your land but always under oppression, always under fear? This is a big part of what God wants to teach His people here. The Israelites had abandoned the Lord to serve other gods. Notice the word serve. They thought serving the Baals and serving the Asherahs would bring them a better life, would bring them greater freedom and prosperity. But what did they discover? Serving the Baals brings only servitude, brings slavery, it brings shackles, and it brings poverty. The Lord in His grace is teaching His people a hard but necessary lesson that serving false gods is the road to slavery. It's the road back to Egyptian bondage. Is that a lesson we've learned, beloved? If we chase after sin thinking it will bring pleasure and fulfillment, 
do we understand that in the end, all we'll be left with is misery and emptiness? How many Christians have chased sexual fantasies only to be ground down in loneliness and despair? How many Christians have pursued their sinful desires only to discover, after a while, the desire holds them in its grip, in chains that they have no power to break anymore, and they are addicted to their desire? It's got them. This first situation in the book of Judges, this first enslavement of the people of Israel was meant to be a massive wake-up call for God's people. For notice who the conquering force is. It's a king, we're told, from Mesopotamia. It's not a Canaanite king. They'll come a bit later as we go through the book, but... It's not a Canaanite king. It's, it's not the Philistines. It's not even the Moabites from just across the River Jordan. It's a Cushite king from the far northwest from Mesopotamia. Notice that, that word Cush or Cushite, Cushan, is in the name of this king. We know from the Bible that there was a land called Cush, to the south in Africa, but we also know from the Bible that there was a line of kings descended from a man named Cush, Cush, who was the son of Ham, and Ham, you remember, was the cursed son of Noah, and that, that Cush and his sons settled in the north in Mesopotamia. In Genesis 10, we read of Cush fathering Nimrod. And it was Nimrod who moved to the north and became a mighty ruler. And it was Nimrod who, who set up a kingdom. You know what kingdom Nimrod set up? The kingdom of Babel. The most anti-God kingdom in the history of the world. And while the Tower of Babel was never completed because the Lord intervened, there remained in the north a huge powerful force of ungodly people in the line of Nimrod, in the line of Cush, whom the Lord now stirs up to swoop down from the north to enslave his people right in their own land. The Cushites are coming. The Nimrod descendants have come. And the current king has a name, a nickname probably, that would send shivers down anybody's spine. They call him Cushan Rishathaim which means he's literally the Cushite of double wickedness. Risha Thaim, double trouble. This man was feared for his cruelty and evil. And now we've got the sons of Abraham, children of God, conquered by the sons of Nimrod and Cush. How humiliating that was for them. And it was a powerful message sent from the covenant God, if you turn away from me, my people, this is what you can expect. Misery and bondage in the kingdom of man where the strong oppresses the weak. That's what goes on in the kingdom of darkness. There's no light there. There's no freedom there. There's no life for you there. This is what you're buying when you trade me for the idols. 
Do we understand, brothers and sisters, that sometimes the Lord, our God, still today teaches us powerful lessons like this? That when you or I fall into a sinful pattern and do not repent, that the Lord in His wisdom and in His kindness might just give us over to that sin for a time or might give us over to some un other ungodly power that will afflict us in order to teach us. For example, if I allow anger and bitterness to dwell inside me, if I feed those feelings I have about somebody or some situation and, and I, I let the anger fester, the Lord may make it so that I can no longer not feel those feelings. Where bitterness and anger control me. And the result is coldness and misery. Or if I allow my selfishness to guide my decision-making, the Lord may just let go of the break He has on my life and let selfishness rule me. See how this works for you. And selfishness takes over completely. And, and who likes a selfish person? The result will be loneliness and a meaningless life. The Lord still teaches lessons like that today because we still struggle with sins and idolatry today of different kinds. But in all of this, brothers and sisters, and, and, and this is the, the gospel, your God is busy with you and me. If He's teaching us something, He's busy with us for good. Our text says that the Lord was angry with His people, but notice the Lord does not desert His people as He had every right to do. All through the book of Judges, in fact, we see the Lord staying with His people, disciplining them. Oh, yes, but disciplining them because He loves them. And He disciplines them so that they will learn to love Him. They will learn to hate their rebellion, learn to say no to the sinful desires of the flesh. Those are the lessons we need to learn. Are we learning them? If we find ourselves enslaved to some miserable force beyond our control, to some form of, of double wickedness, our own Kushan Rishathaim. What will we do? Will we do what the Israelites did and cry out to the Lord for help? Will we do even more and repent of our sin and turn back our hearts to the Lord our God and so find the road back to freedom? For that's the second powerful lesson the Lord teaches here. The road to freedom is found only in turning to Him. Kushan Rishathaim ruled the people of Israel eight years, and then we read they cried out to God. It took eight years. World War II lasted five, five and a half. This took eight before they cried out to the Lord. Think about that. As the book of Judges goes along, 
the length of enslavement that the people endure tends to get longer and the people tend to get duller. They lose their sensitivity to both their predicament and to their God. That's what happens. When we forget our God and turn our back on Him, it can take quite a while to realize the mess that we've made and how stupid we've been. It can take a long time before we come to that conclusion. It can take even longer to figure out how to get out of the misery. Well, when there's nowhere left to turn, the Israelites go back to the place that they never should have left. They turn back to God. Maybe you've done that too. For a while in your life, you did your own thing, and God wasn't part of it. But that turned to misery, and so you turn back to the Lord. Verse 9 says that the people cried out to the Lord. What kind of cry is that, do you suppose? The text doesn't say, actually. Certainly, the Israelites are at the right address with their cry, but do they have the right attitude in their cry? Is it a cry of repentance and sorrow for their act of rebellion? Or is it a cry of regret and despair over the burden in their life? Is it the cry of a broken and contrite heart that, that loves the Lord and is truly sorry for the wrong that's been done? Or is it the cry of somebody who wants relief from the trouble but whose heart is unchanged? What kind of cry is your cry, beloved? Well, whatever kind of cry this is, the, Lord, the Lord's compassion is on full display here. Verse 9, For no sooner do His people cry out than we read that the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. That's how the first judge is described, Othniel. And I'd like you to notice he's called a deliverer who saves the people. Now in Hebrew, that word deliverer and the word save have the same root. So you could legitimately translate that as the Lord raised up a Savior to save Israel. In other words, there will be 12 people in the book of Judges who will be raised up as saviors. All of them are called judges at one point or another. And I think we, we mostly understand that word to mean a person who makes a legal ruling, especially when there's a dispute between people. That's how the word is used in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And very likely that's the task of these 12 judges in this book. But that's not the task that's highlighted so frequently. What is highlighted is that the Lord raises up each of these judges to be a savior for his people, to save them from their oppressors. And in that, brothers and sisters, we have a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, of that, that coming savior. The 12 judges, you could say, give us 12 pictures of the kind of savior whom the Lord will ultimately raise up. Some of the judges, judges show us a glimpse of what the Savior will be like. They give us a positive portrayal. Some of the judges show us what the Savior will not be like. They give us a, a negative example. 
But as you study the judges of the book, this book, and, and I know a number of you are, are, are doing that, then as you go along, compare these judges to what you know about Jesus, and then you can see what they will teach you about God's greatest Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what do we know about this particular judge, Othniel? We know he's the nephew of Caleb. And Caleb was a big name in Israel. We read a little bit about that in chapter 1. You can go back to the book of Joshua. You can go back to the book of Deuteronomy. And you can read more about Caleb. He was basically a hero among the people, like Joshua himself. Caleb was one of the faithful of the previous generation who had stood alongside of Joshua. He was one of the 12 spies. They had scouted out the land, and it was Caleb and Joshua who came back and said, we can take the land because the Lord will fight for us. It doesn't matter that there's giants there. Caleb was a man gifted with faith and conviction. Even when the other ten spies spoke against that and sowed unbelief among the people, Caleb and Joshua stood up and said, no, 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 we can do this. Trust the Lord. We can go in. He was one of only two men that the Lord preserved throughout the time of the wilderness wanderings so that he and Joshua with him could go into the land of Canaan. And we can read in the book of Joshua that at the age of 85, Caleb went and conquered the giants in the inheritance that was given to him. So Othniel is from that clan Caleb is his uncle, and Othniel is cut from the same cloth. He's a bright light. He's unafraid of the Canaanites. He's willing to risk his life for, to do the Lord's work of conquering the land. And right there you can see, can you not, the character of the Lord Jesus in him. He's not afraid. Look at verse 10 of our text. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. Othniel willingly went against this double trouble king of Mesopotamia. And he's fighting God's battle. This is the age-old battle between the seed of the serpents, followers of Satan, and the seed of the woman, followers of God. And just as the Holy Spirit led Othniel to victory over Cushite, of double wickedness, so the same Spirit later came upon Jesus to lead him to victory over Satan, the captain of all the Cushites and all the Nimrods of history, the captain of all wickedness. And Satan was defeated because the hand of Jesus prevailed over him on the cross. And there's something else about this Othniel. He is, we are told, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb. Well, many assume that Caleb and Kenaz were part of the tribe of Judah because they, they lived among those people, but that's not quite accurate. They certainly did live among the clans of Judah, but they actually have a different family origin. Caleb and his brother are offspring of a Gentile people known as the Kenizzites. You can read about the Kenizzites starting in Genesis 15. They pop up every now and again. They were actually 
residents at one time, anyway, of Canaan. But we read in Joshua 14 that Caleb was the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Othniel, then, is a Kenizzite. Othniel is a Gentile. Yet, Othniel and Caleb were clearly loved by the Lord, and they loved the Lord and trusted Him with all their hearts. So, so here we have foreigners coming into Israel, even into the mighty tribe of Judah, which was supposed to produce rulers for the people, and they are, these Gentiles, they are in truth more faithful and more noble than any of the Israelites, even any of the tribe of Judah. Othniel is an outsider who becomes an insider, who becomes one with the Israelites in order to save them from their oppressor. Can you see also Christ in that aspect of Othniel? The Son of God also, didn't He, come from the outside. He came down from heaven, down to earth, to become a man. Jesus took on human flesh. He became one of his people, just like Othniel became one. He became a man of Judah, the Son of God did, in order to save his people from their greatest oppressor. Othniel points us to the great Savior Jesus. And in all of this, brothers and sisters, do you see the grace? Do you see the mercy of the Lord on display? Do you see his great love for his people and the marvelous, unexpected way of saving them? Who would have thought that a Gentile convert would be chosen to lead Israel and rescue them from their oppressor? The story is meant to inspire within us a return love for this God who so clearly loves us. It's meant to teach us also to run from our idols and embrace this one true, powerful, saving God in faith and love. What do the false gods of this world, what do they do for us but entangle us and enslave us and create misery for us? Let the darkness of the book of Judges hit you, brothers and sisters. That's your life and mine if we turn our back on God. But if this God can come and save the whole nation from slavery to double wickedness, then He can surely come to you and save you from whatever slavery to sin that might be in your life. Do not forget your covenant God. Do not do what Israel did and turn your back on Him, but, but run to Him, cry out to Him with a broken and contrite heart and see how fast He'll send to you the Savior to help turn your life around. Amen.